Hello, and welcome back to the Grace Downtown podcast. The Grace Downtown staff and a team of volunteers have been basically eating, breathing, and sleeping the 10-year anniversary reunion for the last few weeks, and there's not really an end to it in sight until the actual 10-year anniversary celebrations. We're having a reunion dinner on July 18th, and if you haven't signed up for that yet, you should. Um, Tickets are $10 for adults and an amount I can't remember for children. But I don't actually need to remember the amount because all of that information is online at gracedc.net slash downtown. Then the next day, on July 19th, we're having a special commemorative 10-year anniversary worship service. We'll be welcoming guest preacher John Hutchinson, former pastor of McLean Presbyterian Church. McLean Presbyterian is actually one of the two churches that partnered to start Grace Downtown. The other church that partnered with McLean to help get our community started was Redeemer Presbyterian Church up in New York City. And for the podcast today, we're bringing you an exclusive talk from Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. A few weeks ago, Grace Downtown welcomed Tim to D.C., where he gave a talk on church planting to pastors from throughout the city. We're excited to bring you that talk today, but before we get to it, I just want to warn you, the audio quality is a little bit dodgy. We're sorry about that. We don't always have complete control over our recording environments or our recording equipment, but we do our best where we can. Now, this is a little bit longer than our usual podcast, so I won't take up any more of your time. To introduce Tim, here's Glenn. Uh, welcome. My name's Glenn Hobart, and I am uh, a planter and pastor at Grace DC. And I want to welcome you, really, uh, on behalf of a couple of hosts today. Uh, one is Christ Our Shepherd, uh, the other NCC and the District Church. And uh, this is what we just informally call the D.C. Planters Group. Uh, and I know some of you aren't exactly there, or maybe it's your first time. But uh, this is a group that I think was birthed out of uh, about 20 years of prayer from some faithful folks that are in this room. And also a City Fathers Movement that was uh, a conference that started a couple years ago, and through it, there was this desire that we would begin to just gather together, build friendship, share a common love for the city, uh, before one another, and our ministries in the city. So uh, I'm just curious if, if this is your first time at one of our D.C. planners gatherings. Raise your hand here. Good. Great. Glad to have you here. And uh, you're probably on the email list. If you're not, we'll put you on it, and we'll let you know when we have gatherings like this. Uh, this is a little bit bigger, and uh, oftentimes uh, our speakers will come within or our topics will come within. Um, but had this opportunity this afternoon to uh, hear from City to City, which is Redeemer New York's church planning, um, their church planning arm, and... Uh, and excited for you, in particular, to hear from Tim Keller about cities. And I just wanted to say a word about this. Um, when people ask me about the startup of Grace DC, I will say that we had two mothers. 
um, two mothers. One, our local mother, was McLean Presbyterian Church across the river. And uh, our regional mother was Redeemer Church, New York. Uh, they were the ones that really poured into us uh, with resources, uh, not only philosophical, theological resources, but financial resources. And uh, so I guess it's appropriate to say that the two fathers are here today, uh, of, of the mothers, because uh, one, John Hutchinson, was pastor of McLean Prez uh, for over a decade. Uh, John is now president of City to City and uh, was instrumental in recruiting me to come here, uh, walking with me in those early years. Grace DC will celebrate its official 10th year. We've been here for 12th to 10th year, and he'll be preaching at that service in July. So that is how formative John has been. Um, and I think, uh, as I would say, one of the lessons that John communicated to me early on was uh, perseverance. Because uh, I remember him once saying, if I had to give one more potential church planner a tour of D.C., I'm going to go crazy. Uh, because they, they had to keep looking and praying. Not because I'm so special. Uh, that wasn't the point. Uh, but rather, it was just perseverance they had. Um, second of all would be the influence of Tim Keller. And uh, Tim has not only... Uh, influenced me in his writing, but in the early years, just taking time to be in conversation with me. And I still remember a couple things he said that uh, were like prophecies. Uh, I'm still sort of working out the meaning of them. And why I was so zealous when John said, we want to come to D.C. and uh, we would like to gather and meet with some planters and ministry leaders. Um, do you know a group? I immediately thought of this group. This was the group I wanted uh, Tim to address because of the residents. And let me just quickly mention three things. One is um, Tim's uh, global concern has never compromised his local concern. So as broad as his ministry has been around the world in his writing, he has always had a love for his city, New York. He's always had a bias for that city, a holy bias. And I love that because I think every planter has to have that sort of bias for their place. They've got to love it. The second thing is, early on, Tim would say, and this was, you know, their church obviously is a large church, but he would say, one church cannot reach a city. One denomination cannot reach a city. Uh, many need to. And this, is, this fellowship is an expression of that. We are cross-cultural, cross-denominational here. We're for one another. Uh, we're not in competition for one another. And that's what this fellowship is really about. Uh, we're so glad that everybody's together. And the last thing I would say about Tim is his unflagging zeal for church planning. Uh, his belief that uh, church planning is a way, the way primarily that God will be advancing his kingdom, and particularly in cities. And I don't know of anybody that has written more thoughtfully, uh, practically, um, about urban church planning than Tim. So I'm delighted uh, that we can have him. And basically what we're going to do is Tim is going to uh, address us um, on a topic of public faith. And then John Hutchinson and Scott Kaufman from uh, City to City want to stand up and just share a little bit about what they're doing. And we'll end with some Q&A. And we built in a good chunk for Q&A. The reason we limited this event is because I really wanted uh, us, you, to be able to ask questions. 
It may be about the content you hear, or just about church planning in general, because that's why we're gathered. So, uh, before Tim comes up, will you join me as we pray? God, we are just grateful to be alive today. Uh, this is the day that you've made. And even as we sit here and eat lunch, you are building your church. You're working your purposes in this city, in New York, and all over the world. And uh, we believe in you. We honor you for that. Jesus, uh, we're delighted for the work that you're doing. And this room is just a representation of it. I thank you for the brothers and sisters that have labored for decades in this city. Our forebearers, those uh, upon whom our church plants, newer church plants, have been built. We thank you for the newest church plant here and pray that they would know uh, that you were going to be faithful to them as you have been with your people all along. And we thank you for feeding us. Thank you for this food. Um, thank you for this place, Calvary Baptist. We pray that you would bless them. And we thank you for city to city, uh, the selflessness, the passion, and the way that you've borne fruit for their ministry. So now, uh, be with us in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Tim, I'm going to hand it over to you. Do they know what I'm talking about, or am I just telling you? Did I say it right? Is it about public faith, or are we all... Yeah, no, that's right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> best, uh, we can, you can ask me about this uh, if you want. We use the term public faith in, in uh, New York City to talk about evangelism, to talk about being outwardly faced. Uh, one of the reasons is public faith is a way of saying um, it's right for everyone to be public about who they actually are, and that's why Christians should be public about who they are. That, of course, taps into the cultural narrative of expressive individualism and somehow resonates with people even though expressive individualism isn't really true. So, did you get that? In other words, the idea is be yourself. So for, for, for Christians to say, instead of using the word evangelism, to say we think we should be uh, uh, true to who we are, uh, not only in our private life but also in our public life, that, I think that resonates. Uh, I am here to talk to you about how to create a culture in your church that's evangelistic and outwardly faced or focused. And one of the advantages of being old is you've seen a lot of other trends that come through. It's, it's, it is, it's almost impossible. I mean, my, I had a, my mother-in-law used to say she, she had five children. She said, I want, I want to write a book someday, how to, write, how to Raise the First Child Like the Fifth. <laughs> you know, by the time you get to the fifth, you know, you're, you're relaxed. And you need to be relaxed at first. And the answer is, the answer to that is don't write that book. Nobody can do that. You have to get, you're never going to be able to be as relaxed as you are with the fifth is, uh, until you are anxious for the first. Just no other way to do it. And it's, it's difficult uh, not to get caught up in trends when you're young because it's the only thing you've really known firsthand. This is it. This is the way it's going to happen. And, and um, you begin to realize that the, uh, the various trends, the various uh, uh, programs that come through, everybody says, this is, this is the new thing. Everybody's doing it this way. Uh, you do need to take it with a grain of salt. They are gonna things are going to change. And uh, when it comes to evangelism, when I was uh, first starting out, the way you did evangelism in the ordinary church 
was actually through crusades. Now, in other words, a, 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 Billy Graham, of course, was the, was the Cadillac version of that, but there were lots and lots and lots of tra traveling uh, evangelistic associations that would come to town, and the churches, generally the more evangelical churches, of course, in that town would all come together, and they would... Uh, um, I, I have a church in, in Hopewell, Virginia, about two hours south of here, and uh, at least every other year there would be uh, an evangelist would come to town and say we're going to have a crusade, and the churches that would get involved would get involved, and you train your volunteers, and you have the have the meetings for a week. And sometimes you have them in your own church. You brought an evangelist in, and he preached for a week, and then you ask people to, to you know come forward, and that's how you did crusade evangelism. And it died out, by the way, pretty much, and not totally, but of course, but it tended to die out. And, and there's a lot of reasons why. One of them was that. The people who very often were one you know, who made a decision under the preaching of the evangelist, you couldn't transfer that. Then you know the very next week the person was supposed to show up in a church, sometimes a different building, certainly with a different minister and a whole different community, and they hadn't actually found their faith in a particular community. They found their faith in a kind of a temporary Walt Disney World kind of Christian community, you know, you know, spectacular, and then suddenly you couldn't get them into the churches. Uh, also, they, you still are sort of expecting people to hear the Bible preached and to come forward and give their lives to Christ. So these are people; these are people who are already relatively ripe. And and as those those ripe people stopped happening as much in our culture, uh, as our culture got less and less Christian, the, the crusade. <laughs> the next big trend was lay evangelism training in all kinds of versions of it. One of them was. D. James Kennedy's Evangelism Explosion. Uh, one of them was, uh, of course, uh, Campus Crusade had Life Institute, Lay Institute for Evangelism. There were lots and lots and lots of ways of. Uh, uh, John Stott did his own version of it at All Souls back in the uh, 50s and 60s. And he, and what they would do is you 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 would find a, a cadre of people inside your church that you train how to share their gospel, and you either sent them out into the neighborhoods, or you always had them visit people who had visited your church and and they would share the faith. And the problem with that, by the way, that's also uh, pretty much gone away. One of the reasons was that you could never get more than just a tiny little percentage of your actual people in your church really involved in that. Uh, only maybe 1% would you know, be willing to, to get the training and do it. And then, again, and then what would happen is uh, you might have this little, you create this little, little contrary of evangelistically minded people in your church, 1% or 2%. And they would actually go out and they would actually see some conversions where they brought them into the church. The church really was not a good place for newcomers. It was, it was similar to the evangelism, I mean, the, to the, the crusade. The church hadn't changed. You had a specialty situation that would win somebody. Then you brought them to the church and they kind of withered or they didn't like the church because the church itself wasn't really the place where they had found faith. The church itself wasn't. They found faith with these, this little group of you know, Marines, you know, sort of spiritual evangelistic Marines that you would train, you know, SEAL SWAT team people. Um, and that kind of went away. It's also true, I do remember I, I was trained in evangelism explosion uh, years ago, and I remember very carefully, very, very, very well, uh, very vividly, that we were told if somebody asked a question like, well, how do you know there is a God? You just ignored it. You just got. You just kept going down the aisle. 
<laughs> because people who say, well, how do you, how you can't trust the Bible, or, you know, how do you know Jesus was raised from the dead, or anything? You just figure that deep down they all believe the basic furniture. Basically, their intellectual worldview, their basic deep worldview was basically Christian. They did trust the Bible. They did believe in God. And it was really, that was just, uh, you know, that was just misdirection. That was just a way of trying to get you off the, you know, off of your, your, uh, your message. And that you ignored it. And, of course, as the years went by, more and more people not only asked those questions, but more and more people really genuinely didn't know the answer to those questions. And a lot of those presentations didn't work. Uh, the, the, the way we're in now is the, I guess, the, the way we're in now, you could call the, the, the weekly home meeting. There are, uh, the Alpha program is by far the most uh, successful version of it. The idea is that evangelism becomes something that you bring people into a group and uh, you show them videos or you take them through studies. Uh, like I said, the Alpha program is it's 12 weeks and you bring people in and and uh, there's also other places like that. So a couple times a year, once a year, you, uh, you try to get people into alpha groups. Uh, you have some trained leaders of alpha groups. Uh, it is, of, of all the, uh, of all, frankly, I think every one of these ways is getting a little better because it's getting a little more church-centric and it's getting a little more community-centric and a little less content-oriented. Uh, because the, uh, the people who find faith in these weekly meetings where you have a, uh, you know, kind of a, a set of weekly meetings. You have seekers in those weekly meetings, and they're listening. They're either reading books or they're watching uh, recordings. They're watching uh, DVDs of, of, of speakers and so on. That is more. That's more of a communal process where the people are processing issues with others. It's not so much that they're getting a presentation. Uh, it's not just a, 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 an information dump. Uh, it's more, and it's also a little more organic. And yet, and yet, the problem I found, for example, I do know when I came to Manhattan years ago, um, uh, about halfway through my time, in, uh, I, I, a couple of other people came to New York that wanted to start churches that had, uh, had, had great experiences with Alpha. Uh, and I'm not probably knocking Alpha, I'm talking about the, the idea that you get people in these weekly meetings and they, they find faith. Um, and almost everybody I know, at least in New York City, that tried to do Alpha really heavily, found it didn't work very well. For a couple of reasons. One is it still sort of assumes, uh, it basically was a lot of, it assumes a certain amount of spiritual ripeness still on the part of the people coming in. Uh, the, uh, the classes are still more about covering Christianity and not so much about dealing with, with all the issues like what about evil and suffering? How do you know there's a God? What about moral absolutes? Uh, there's, it's, it's still much more running them through what, what Christianity teaches and not starting back further where people are to deal with so many of their other issues. It also, by the way, it, 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 for busy urban people to ask people to show up week, you know, every Tuesday night for the next 9 or 10 or 11 doesn't work very well at all. And still, I happen to know, you, some of you know too, it's still a problem that the group doesn't necessarily affect the church, in other words, a person who finds faith through the group then comes into the church and finds the church itself is not a good place for a newcomer or a person in process. What is needed is a change in the entire church culture. And there is, there's no shortcuts. The programs will not work. What you need is the whole church culture has to become a place where uh, people can come in who are in process and find faith through 
not only content, but also through community. Not only having uh, their questions really uh, treated with respect and getting good answers, but also processing it very, very deliberately and slowly because the entire church is actually, in a sense, an alpha group. The entire church now has a, uh, a culture in which it can process and work very well with people who don't believe. How do you do that? Now, I have to say, it's way, way easiest. It's, it's hard. But inside the hardness of doing this, the easiest is to start a church with this culture. The second easiest is to renew a culture that used to be more open to outsiders, and now you just have renewed. The hardest is to deal with a, a, an older church that actually hasn't been very open to outsiders for, you know, within memory. And that's actually pretty hard. So what I'm about to tell you, I'm going to give you a set of, you know, bang, 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 bangs. I, I don't underestimate the difficulty of actually uh, putting these things in place, especially with churches that actually have never had anything like this. And they're older and, and they're set in their ways. But here's how I think you have to create an outward-facing culture so that your whole church has an outward-facing culture. Three things, okay? Number one, you actually have to you can either say embrace, or you can say promote, or you can say create. Create, promote, or embrace. Gospel-based pluralism. Now, let me explain that. There is a secular kind of pluralism that looks diverse on the outside, but underneath is actually really, really, really exclusive and narrow. It's a it's secular pluralism based on the idea of relativism, that nobody's really got the truth. That everybody's got their their own uh, their own views that are meaningful to them, but nobody actually has any kind of objective truth. So what that means is uh, they welcome secular pluralism, welcomes diversity as long as you all believe that. And as soon as you don't believe the secular understanding of truth, you are pariah. You must even be here, which of course is just as bad as the old Christendom ever was. I mean, the old Christendom was we're Christians and you're not, so well, we don't want to have anything to do with you. Uh, we're relativists and you're not, so we won't have anything to do with you. It's, it's just Christian, you know, reverse Christian, it's just as ideological, it's just as bad. What is gospel pluralism? Gospel-based pluralism is saying, I want to be open, welcome, and respectful to people regardless of their points of view. I'm not going to treat you, I'm not going to treat you, if you're a relativist and I'm not, well, okay. You're another point of view and I just want to be respectful to you. I want to treat you as a human being. I want to be open to you. I want to, I want to hear you out. That's all. I'm not going to treat you as some kind of terrible person because you are a relativist. I'm not going to treat you as a terrible person if you're a Muslim or if you're a different kind of Christian than me. I mean, a significantly different kind of Christian. You're a Greek Orthodox, you know, charismatic, which almost seem like two different religions, even though they all believe in the Apostles' Creed. I'm not, we're really going to be respectful and open. Now, how does that gospel-based pluralism work? It works on the heart. It comes from the heart. And here's what it means. On the one hand, the gospel, that you're a sinner saved by grace, um, creates both a humility and a confidence at the same time. Uh, if you believe you're saved by your works, by being a good person, then you're humble if you're not living up to your standards, but not confident, you feel bad about yourself. Or if you're confident, but you're not humble, if you're living up to your standards, you know, because you're kind of proud of that. But if you're saved by grace, strictly by grace, just Jesus' grace, 
then, on the one hand, that humbles you because you're such a sinner, you'd be lost if it wasn't for Jesus, and you did nothing to earn your salvation, so it humbles you. At the same time, you're completely loved and accepted, totally. Right now. Not like May, at the end of your life, if you're good enough, you're going to heaven. Like, right now, God loves you. So what that does is, on the one hand, it gives you two kinds of confidence. Enough confidence that you are willing to say, I'm a Christian. You don't hide it. See, part of pluralism is that you really are diverse. That is, you say, I'm a Christian. I'm born again. I believe you're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. If you don't say that, that's not pluralism. You're just trying to fit in to the relativistic, you know, uh, you know culture. Yeah, so you, you should have confidence to say, because I don't care what people think. It's what Jesus thinks that matters. So now I can say it. So on the one hand, it gives you the, uh, enough confidence to say your point of view. Secondly... It gives you enough security that you don't have to win every argument. The Christians who feel like they've got to win every argument and they've got to, they always have to have the final word in every conversation. Uh, you really wonder, do you really believe you're a sinner saved by grace or do you feel like you're a sinner saved because you're right? Uh, God, you know, because I'm right and because I never let the other people have it. Anyway, you, you, you should have security not to feel like you've got to win every conversation, have security not to say who you are, but at the same time, two kinds of humility. One is personal humility. There is no way, if you believe you're a sinner saved by grace, you can feel superior to other people who aren't Christians. So, for example, I'm a Christian. You're not a Christian. Let's just say we're both, you know, men. I'm 65. The other guy's 65. I'm a Christian. You're not a Christian. I'm trying to share my faith. Here's what I know. That guy could be a better father, a better husband, a better man. More moral person, he could be all those things than me, even though I'm not a Christian. Why? Because I'm not saved by being a better husband or being a better father or being a more moral person. I'm saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if I believe that, then the Christian, the non Christian I'm talking to, could easily be a better person than me. I'm open to that. Am I not? I should be. Otherwise, I'm not believing my own doctrine. And that's, so, how can I feel superior to anybody I'm ever talking to? And I want you to know that creates respect. But then there's intellectual humility. And the intellectual humility is that because I'm a sinner saved by grace, and that's what makes me saved, not by being right about everything, uh, I also happen to know that God is really generous. It's called common grace in, in my circles. It's a theological term. Common grace is that God actually gives non-Christians all sorts of wisdom, all sorts of talents, so that the world is a much better place than it would be otherwise. Just think of it. If, if only... The only saved Christians were the only people who were smart, were wise, created great music, you know, created beauty in the world. Just think what a miserable world the place would be. But since, since God is, which was not enough of us, but since God is uh, giving this to everybody, then, then I, I should have intellectual humility. This guy could be telling me something I need to hear. This person could have wisdom. See, when you take the gospel, yeah, theology and think it out, it creates gospel pluralism. And gospel pluralism is where I'm actually uh, showing respect, showing a great deal of respect to all the people here uh, around me, and I'm actually doing it in a way that I think secular uh, pluralists can't do. In fact, and the old times we didn't do either. So that creates a, that's what I mean by pluralism, it's an attitude. But here's something else that comes in underneath this uh, embrace the, you know, create gospel pluralism. It's not just the, the attitude that comes from the gospel. You have to deliberately extend the idea of Christian community. Here's what I mean by that. 
extend the idea of Christian community. One of the things you need to say when you talk to your church is you say, we are a learning community. And here's, I often, here's what I mean by learning community. We want people in our midst who are not Christians, but who are doubting and who are skeptical and who are thinking about things. Why? Because we want to be a place where, on the one hand, Christians, by talking to people who doubt, Christians probably don't really know what they believe well enough. They, you know, especially Christians who have grown, people who've grown up, people who have inherited their Christian faith largely, very often aren't as sure about what they believe because they haven't been challenged. They need to be challenged. They need to have people come and say, why do you believe that? And have them say, I don't really know why I believe that. I guess I, I don't Christians believe that? Well, yeah, but why do Christians believe that? Well, I don't know. And so let me study about that. And what, what's happening is the Christians are actually deepening in their faith by being involved with people who are not believers. But on the other hand, of course, the non-believers are also in a learning community where they're actually surrounded by people uh, who believe very differently than they do, and that's going to be a learning experience for them. Maybe process in their doubts. Maybe they'll find faith. And so what I often say is, it's a Christian community, but it's various things. Uh, it's also a learning community that includes people who are not Christians. Your church is all, it's, it's, it's a Christian community. It means it's the body of Christ, and only you know, people in the body of Christ are people who are baptized and they believe in Jesus. But there's another, sometimes you can talk, you can use the rhetoric of talking about your church as a learning community. And if you do that, then the people who are sitting there who may or not be believers, they, they feel included, and they should feel included. It's also true, and I think it's, uh, it's one more thing. You're going to have to talk to your people about how friendship works. Um, C.S. Lewis's famous book, uh, The Four Loves, he's got a chapter in there, and the most famous of the four chapters is the chapter on friendship. And in there he says, friendship is based on a discovered affinity, a common vision. He, uh, C.S. Lewis says that friendships start with, the, with, the, with the, this question. You, you too? See, a friend is someone... You, you can be a friend with somebody who loves the same books or loves the same sports or, uh, or has some similar passion. And when you find somebody who's just great, you know, gaga over the same literature that you are, it, it creates a basis for a friendship. Now, Christians have a tendency to say rightly that the ultimate common vision is the gospel. And I can meet somebody from a completely different culture... And because we both believe uh, and have experienced salvation through Jesus Christ, by the blood of Jesus Christ, that what's great about that is that gives me a bond and a basis for friendship with somebody radically different than me. And what I do know about that, which is great, is those are remarkable because the one place of contact, which is faith in Jesus Christ, and every other place I'm totally different, because I trust them through the common vision with Jesus, I'll have to listen to things they say that otherwise I would dismiss. They may have a different politics, they have different this, different that. And ordinarily I'd say, but now this is a friend. And because, what's weird is because of the place where we agree, I have to listen to the places where we disagree. And it, and it, it enriches me, it changes me in some way. It certainly broadens me. Now, Christian, you have to train your Christian friends to see this. Don't do friendship evangelism, say to your people. Don't do friendship evangelism, just do friendship. Mm -hmm. right. That's good. 
And in friendship, you're finding non-Christians. You're not being tribal. Jesus says in the gospel, in, in, in Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, it says, uh, if you only greet your own people, you know, if you only greet your own people, what, what do you more than others? In other words, if, if the only people that you actually have strong relationships with and good friendships with are Christians, you're being tribal. Deliberately find non-Christians where you have a common vision. It could be a common. It could be a common passion for a sport. It could be a common passion for this or that. Cultivate those. Find the common vision. Cultivate those. And as the trust grows, just let people see into your heart. And Jesus is down there. As long as you don't hide Jesus in your heart, friendships with non-Christians are going to have an impact. You know. You know. Don't do just don't do friendship evangelism, which is kind of a way of saying. I'll be your friend until I can share the gospel to you. Just be a friend. Just be committed to them. Just love them. And of course, if you're not hiding who you are, they're going to see something in Jesus. And so this is going to be by saying, extend the idea of Christian community. You've got these resources for Christian community in Jesus. But extend them to non-Christian neighbors and colleagues and friends. And when they show up, tell them that we're at, we are a community. You might say, it's not like we're the Christian community and you're onlookers. Well, that's true in a way. And at some points, like when you're fencing the Lord's table, or the Lord's supper, or when you're doing a baptism, they're there. They're going to realize we're on the, I'm on the outside here. But there's also all sorts of other ways in your preaching and the way you talk, in which you you are you're looking at them, you're you're acknowledging that they're there. You're saying, look, I know some of you think that's weird. So, for example, if I'm preaching, and I say, well, the Bible says this, and the Bible says that. Now, if I assume that everybody in the room are Christians. Then I know, okay, they trust the Bible, and so I can keep on going. And if I know there's non-Christians and you know non-believers out there, and I don't say anything to them, they really feel like, you know, what am I chopped liver? Because they find what I just said outrageous. But if I turn and say, look, I just said this, but before going on, I'll bet you there's people here who probably think what I just said is pretty outrageous. But I would like you to consider this. When you do that, so you are actually saying you're part of this community. Well, how can non-Christians be part of a Christian community? Well, they're part of a learning community and the serving community, which is always a bit bigger than just the actual body of Christ. Do you know how to do this? You see what I mean by saying this isn't real easy to do, uh, but this is all the way in which you do, you create gospel pluralism. Secondly, okay, you have to develop a lay ministry community. And here's what I mean by that. I'm going to be brief, brief on these last two, but because uh, I figure you're going to ask me questions. I just said we don't want to do this. You don't want to have the little Navy SEAL team, evangelistic team. In other words, the, 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 past, the programs in the past take this little teeny cadre of people who have this evangelistic passion. You train them, you know, and then they go out and do things. But the rest of the church is basically not very outward focused. They don't care about non-Christians. They're not, they're not a very good place for non-believers to show up. Having said, let's not do that, let's create a whole church culture. Having said that, there really are a pretty good number of people in your church who you have to encourage and you have to, I think, uh, affirm and to some degree train, not so much to learn a gospel presentation that they present, but that you encourage them to simply be the people who are really taking seriously being friends with non-Christians and trying to cultivate relationships and just letting them see into their heart. A lay ministry community is about 20 to 25% of your people that you perceive as being mature enough 
uh, sensitive spiritually enough that what they're going to do is they're going to start to, they're going to take you seriously. When you preach, don't just be friends with your own tribe. Be friends and be deliberately, deliberately become friends and cultivate friendships with people who don't believe and do it not in order to, not conditionally, just to love them and to let them see what's in your heart and then to stay loving to them regardless of how they respond. Now, Who's going to respond to that? If you preach like that, I want you to know not everybody in your church will respond. But some will. And not just a tiny number. Especially if you're careful. Uh, when, you listen, when you're meeting congregants, listen for those who share stories in which they're clearly talking to non-Christians. Uh, be aware of those who come to you with questions like, well, when somebody asks me about evil and suffering, what do you say? See, those are people who actually are talking. They're, they're not a the gospel's gone deep enough that they're not afraid to identify themselves as Christians. And they love the people around them enough that they're willing to talk about it, even though they might get their head handed to them on a platter. And when you see those people, gather them and begin to train them how? Not in a specific gospel presentation. Because generally speaking, the way people find faith is just through organically talking. Train them deeply. Let them know what, talk to them about the cross, talk to them about the Bible, talk to them about Jesus. Train them in apologetics. Get them together and, and don't say, okay, now we're going to get a group of people and they're going to come this and you're going to do this. No, that's where you get down to 1% or 2% of the people only that will ever do that. Instead, what you really need to do is you need to have a good 20 or 25% of your people that you're bringing together. I call them lay ministers, not lay leaders. A lay leader is someone actually doing a job in the church. A lay minister is a person who you see has got this burden to develop friendships with non-Christians and to really love them and care for them and pray for them. And uh, if you can get 20 or 25% of your congregation uh, to, to be in a, in, in a kind of community like that, you might want to actually get them together once a month to train them, but it doesn't, it's not necessarily the way it has to happen. You have to be pastorally available to them. You, if they call you up and say, I'm talking to my aunt about the gospel, and she asks me this question, I don't know what to do, you've got to be able to get right back to them. They've got to know that you're their, they've got, you're their coach and you've got their back, otherwise they're not going to stick their neck out. You've got to give them resources, and point three, you've got to give them places to bring people if they're starting to show interest. And here's my point three. I think that uh, every church has got to have multiple pathways. And by multiple pathways, I mean there's got to be many levels at which a, a non-believer can enter into some kind of venue, event, uh, temporary community in which they're getting, a, they're getting some exposure to Christianity. But not I, I would actually say that the Alpha programs or those kinds of programs are pretty advanced. I think most people need to be moved along uh, uh, more gently than that. Here's what: If you're going to imagine what I mean by pathways, imagine a building. And there's a lobby, and there's floor one, two, three, four, five. About floor five, that's where people are probably ripe enough to need a course in which they go through Christianity and the gospel and get, you know, get a chance to give their uh, share, you know, give their lives to Christ. But the, the lobby is the friendship, okay? The lobby is the friendship, but here's the other floors. Floor one is, is some activity in which they are being exposed to Christians, but not necessarily to Christianity. 
So you got a bunch of Christian. If you if you're in a small group, uh, it's a Christian small group, and they're going to do a housing rehab with, you know, Habitat for Humanity. For a Saturday, they're going to be painting a, a house. Make sure that the, the people in that group invite non-Christian friends just to come along. They're not going to get a presentation. They're, they're, they will probably come to realize that this is a church group. But they'll just do it because you find out that they actually are interested in this. Remember, you're going to find a common vision with your non-Christian friend, common interest. If you know that they'd be interested in this, bring them along. So level one is they're being uh, exposed to Christians but not necessarily Christianity. Level two is an event in which they're getting... Christianity is seen in a positive light, but they're not actually getting a presentation about what Christianity is. So let's just say you take them to a, uh, an art uh, gallery where an artist who's a Christian is showing uh, his or her things, his stuff or her stuff, and usually the artist gives a little lecture, and in the, in, in the process the artist actually mentions that you know, I'm a Christian and that's the reason why in this particular painting we do this. So you see what I mean? The person's actually hearing Christianity or seeing Christianity in a positive light. But on the other hand, they're not actually getting a presentation. That's floor two. Floor three is where Christianity is one of several divergent voices so they don't feel like they're just being preached at. Uh, it's an event, say, for example, in which you have a, let's just say you have a secular gay activist talking to a Christian law professor about uh, freedom of religion and uh, and freedom of, uh, of expression, and uh, you know, how do we have a, a, a society in which everyone's free to express themselves? Let's just say you do that and you have a moderator. Um, let me tell you something. If, if the Christian law professor is just not terrible, you win. If it's just, if it's, if it's, if it's, if it's careful, if it's smart, now if the Christian is smart, respectful, and just gives the, the onlooker three or four things to say, gee, I never thought of that, never thought of that, interesting. You know, Christianity makes more sense than I thought, actually. That's level three. Level four is where you actually are bringing people into something, they're not a course, but where they're hearing the gospel presented. Or, or some aspect of Christianity presented. Where they're actually uh, hearing somebody say, this is what Christians believe and why they believe it, and making a case for Christianity. I say uh, four or five would actually be a group in which somebody comes and week after week after week they're processing Christianity and Alpha group or something like that. But four or six is your regular church service, which has to be geared for both Christians and non-Christians. I'm not going to say much more about that because I've actually written on that elsewhere. Uh, already, I already talked to you a little bit about how you preach in such a way that the non-Christians realize you know they're present and they don't feel ignored, but there's a lot more you can do. So that's it. That's a lot. That's a whole lot. And the, you, you, have to, you have to grasp this idea of a gospel-inspired, pluralistic ethos that has to be something that is a very difficult thing, I think, to do, especially since most churches use so much insider jargon and language. Um, secondly, you have to uh, identify the cadre of people. If there isn't one, it's just pretty big in which you're, you're really saying, we want you to, to, you have to affirm them, you have to affirm them publicly. If they, you, There's all sorts, you have to model ministry for them. I didn't give you as much information there as I probably should have. You can ask me more on that. And then you have to have these, uh, you might say, a graded path, set of pathways. You have to have events. You have to have all sorts of things that 
the people who are out there, the lay ministers who are relating to people, can bring their, their people to without having to only go bring to church or bring to a group. There's got to be something yeah. short of that that's considerably uh, simpler and easier for them to uh, to take in. Okay, so I think Glenn's going to have a couple of... Glenn's going to introduce John and Scott. They're going to talk, and I'm going to come back, and we're going to do a Q&A. Is that right? Great. Perfect. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, great. We wanted to take a moment so you can get a broader uh, view of the resources that City to City offers. Um, city to City, I'm going to let John and Scott talk about this. John is president of City to City. Scott is vice president of the content. The bottom line is this organization has been uber generous and open to helping anybody because they love God's kingdom, they love cities, they love church planting. So, just want you to know about these opportunities. I'll ask John to come up and then he can do it. Thanks. Love this guy. <laughs> Love this guy here. Thanks, Glenn. Uh, thanks, Tim. And uh, thanks to you guys uh, for being here. It's, it's uh, a treat for us to be here. And um, I'm just glad that you guys could be together. And, and if for no other reason, um, our being here has caused you guys to come together. You're doing the frontline work, and and we're thrilled and, and privileged to be uh, to be here to be a part. Of it. I, I just before Q and A wanted Scott and, and I to, to share a bit about City of City. Uh, lots of folks know about Tim Keller. <laughs> a lot fewer people know about City of City, but we work together hand in hand. In fact, City of City was formed about 15 years ago in the very earliest stages of City to City because there were people. Um, leaders just like you from global cities like D.C. and, and beyond <clears throat> and they, they were saying to us, we've lost our city, basically, from Amsterdam and Germany and other places. We've lost our city to the gospel. Can you guys in New York City help us? What you've learned over the last few years in New York City might be transferable and helpful to to us here and, and these other cities. And so... That was the beginning of, of city to city. There was not some room in which we decided, oh, let's build a, a global uh, entity called city to city. It was really sort of responding to needs. And since then, we've been doing that uh, in lots and lots of cities because the Lord has opened up uh, opportunities and, and invitations to come and help uh, with local leaders. So over the last uh, 15 years of, of, our, um, of our history, we have helped local leaders um, face their cities with a, a call of God that they have to uh, plant churches that are outward-faced, as Tim was just saying, uh, for, for their city. And we have been privileged to be alongside of those local indigenous leaders like you here in D.C. and help to plant over 350 churches in, uh, in about 45 cities globally and and about half a dozen cities here in the United States. And we, uh, we're just humbled and amazed to be a part of, of that. We've also been privileged to help and be engaged in training. We do a lot of training and equipping, sort of passing stuff on that, that the Lord's taught us uh, in New York, but also now from other global cities, we're learning from the, the partners with whom we've partnered to, and so these other cities become labs 
where we're learning a lot from these global cities and passing those on. There's a lot of cross-pollinization, so to speak, of learning going on. But so far, we've helped about 8,000 leaders worldwide. And uh, we, we, have a, um, we have a challenging vision over the next 10 years is to see that just grow exponentially. But bottom line, our mission is to help leaders like yourselves um, build gospel movements in cities like Washington and, and, and other cities. We want to be a help to whatever extent we can. We simply see ourselves as being stewards and servants to the local leaders. We don't ride in on any kind of uh, you know, vehicle or horse and say we know what we're doing, but we, we just want to share uh, whatever resources we can to the local leaders who are on the front lines like you are to do what you're doing in gospel ministry in the cities. Um, we have Scott, who is heading, heading up, our, who heads up our content division. But this is just a little pamphlet we wanted you to have. There are lots of other resources, and if you want to contact us, our email is on the back. Uh, it says hello, but you can get us that way. If you have interest in knowing more about City to City, you can go online on our website and find out more about it too. But we, again, um, a lot of great, great people doing a lot of great things. We want to help in whatever way we can on what you're doing. One of the ways that we have thought about helping the North American church is through a program called the Church Partner Program. And Scott has been at the point on that. And I want to ask Scott Kaufman to just come briefly tell you a little bit about Church Partner Program. It might apply to you, it might not, but you may know somebody that does. So Scott, come here. Thanks for being here. Thanks for letting us be here. Love this Scott. So yes, John asked me to um, to give you a specific invitation for one of the specific things that we do at City to City. So as you know, mostly we focus on working with urban church planners. Uh, and if you're doing a nonprofit that helps urban church planners, you're really doing two things. You're helping urban church planners, and then you're helping fund urban church planners. So you're getting other people who are interested in funding that mission. So um, one of the ways we have always done that for our 15-year history is to get churches existing churches who, as part of their missions program, as part of their mission strategy, see the importance of the city as a, missions, as, a, as a missions location, as a place to do ministry. And they see the importance of church planning as a way of doing ministry. So all along, we've developed partnerships with churches who are really interested in getting behind either a specific city or a specific church planter, or just us in general. And we're recruiting and training and building into and funding these church planters. So um, that's been extremely fruitful as we've worked with a number of churches who have gotten that vision early on. Uh, what we decided we want, you know, we've probably worked with a couple of dozen churches around, the, around North America who have had that vision and sort of have gotten it naturally, early adopter kind of churches. What we decided we wanted to do is actually develop relationships with not a dozen churches, but hundreds of churches who have the same mindset. They love their city, they love wherever they are in their community, and they love church planting, and they want to support that in other places because they see the strategic value of the city. So we started a program called uh, the City to City Partnership. There's a white piece of paper on there, uh, two sides. It's an invitation to you uh, to, to be involved in that partnership. I know most of you are church planters, so it doesn't necessarily apply to you, as John said. But um, here's the deal, and then you know there's 2,000 words on it, but here's 200. Um, Doug always laughs. Great to have work with somebody after the colleague. You know, particularly when you have to work with Tim Keller. When you're on the mic, you're always like the worst person in the room. So, um, so the, the idea of the church partnership is this. 
um, for churches who are interested, existing churches who are interested in investing in church planters, church planters in cities, church planters like many of you, um, we want to help them do that. So we actually connect them with the church that they can sponsor. We almost think of it as a sponsorship program like you would heard of other kinds of things. Uh, and we help them establish a missions partnership. Churches who are investing in church planners, we want to invest in them too. So we're actually, we actually, I'm going to use this phrase for the 17th time right now, a learning community. We've, we form a learning community among churches who are interested in sponsoring church plans in global cities. Does that make sense? Because wherever they are, whether they're urban churches or suburban churches or rural churches, if they have a vision for urban church planting as a ministry strategy, as a mission strategy, we want to connect them. So uh, we're just getting to the end of our first cohort. Um, we have about 15 churches that have gone through the first year, and we've invested heavily in them. These are churches that are investing in our church plans. We're investing in them. And so it's actually been a lot of fun. We've been doing stuff like talk about public faith at quite a bit of level of detail, as well as helping them with their own church planning efforts, as well as some other areas of ministry. So this is a specific recruiting invitation. If you are in a church that might be interested in participating, or know a church that might be interested in participating, let me know before we leave or by email. And we would love to talk to you about whether it might make sense for you for you to um, join us and join us in this learning community of churches that are getting behind urban church planners like yourselves. That's it. That's it, except for this one thing. Uh, yeah. Walter Wood, why don't you stand? Okay. Um, Walter is. Uh, just joined our team and uh, has been a church planner and, and uh, network leader in Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, and has been working with us in Europe for about a month, a year, for how many years? Three years. Three years. So he's going to be he's on our team now full time and, uh, and and facing North America for some of his time with us. So he's here today and available as well. So talk to Scott or talk to Walter about this program in particular. So Glenn, Great, you want to Okay, i Tim like up. We uh, purposely limited this event because wanted uh, us as planters and ministry leaders to be able to have access and just talk, converse, because that's what we do with these lunches. Um, and so we're going to have a, a generous time uh, of q and I'm going to monitor the time. Tim does... They need to hard stop leave here at 2 o'clock. <coughs> Be rude and leave. Just go out that elevator. So we're going to figure out whether or not we stop and let people just informally approach Tim after a while or just go straight through. Here's the uh, thing. Please ask your question uh, as concisely as you can. That would be helpful so more people can ask questions. Um, and Keith, can you talk to me for a second? Say hello. Hello? Okay. We might right. not need a mic. All right. If you need a mic, I'll bring it. But just raise your hand and ask them a question. Uh, thank you for, for being here in your presentation, Tim. Um, you laid out a great articulation of centered set faith in the sense of helping people take, who are non-believers or unchurched, take next steps towards Christ and being a community where they can sort of belong where they believe. Um, you mentioned the, you know, communion, where you kind of have to draw a fence, and mm -hmm. these other things like baptism, membership, even leadership. 
things where you have to believe in order to participate. Right. How do you make that shift not as hard from center set to bounded set, that cultural shift? It's all on the wrist. It's <laughs> <laughs> like a swing. Honestly, I mean, I, for example, I do remember in the early days, I don't know how to, I'm telling you it could be done, but I guess I don't know. I, it's a little bit like, it's, it's difficult to quantify. Um, in the early days of Redeemer, we had uh, the Lord's Supper regularly. We celebrate the Lord's Supper regularly. Uh, many of the people who, who uh, come, you might say, seeking, inquiring, in process, they don't come every week. And therefore, it would be possible for someone to come, you know, for over a period of time and, and not hit a Lord's Supper service. But, so I, fairly often in the early two or three years, I'd be talking to people who were coming and many of them told me that the first time they hit a Lord's Supper service, it was extremely helpful. Because basically what I was saying is, uh, where do you stand? You have to know where you stand right now. And I had a number of people that say, uh, that, that the way in which I fenced the table helped them a great deal. It pushed them to say, well, maybe I do need to make up my mind sometime. Uh, and, and so I do think it can be done in a way in which you're acknowledging the fact that not everybody here is going to be able to take this. Uh, and, of course, what you, what you do want to say is everybody here can uh, you know, do business with God. That's what, you, know, you have to find ways of talking. He said, we want everyone to do business with God right now. If you have not professed faith, if you don't believe this, 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 and we understand why plenty of people do not, we, we want you, while we're participating, that we want you to also talk to God about this. Talk to God about where you are. I invite you to pray. That kind of thing. Now, we, we're, we were always a large church. We, we didn't have people come forward. You have to realize how you do Lord's Supper will make a great deal of difference as to how you do this without it being too jarring. And i got to tell you, to some degree, somebody's not going to like this, um, one of the reasons why I never had people come forward was for that very reason. Because I always found that the people who were not invited to the table had to sit back there while everybody around them came forward and then came back and it just felt a little, all right, that's not the end of the world. It's not a problem. Plenty of churches do it that way. But I didn't want to do it. I just thought it would just be a little gentler to stay in the, in the seats. So uh, I did think these things out. It's a matter, When I say it's all on the wrist, it's a joke, but it's also a matter of touch and, and, and tone and finding some words like that idea of let's, let's all do business with God right now. Those of you who believe this, please, you know, partake. And, and here's what it means to be a Christian. And, and so it, it was evangelistic. Evidently, my Lord's Supper service in the early days was very evangelistic. Never heard anybody turned off by it. So. Go ahead, just speak up. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yes, so um, I'm a new church planter here in D.C. Uh, we'll be celebrating the year next month. Mm -hmm. okay, so, um, great. Really glad to be here and learn from you, uh, Tim. Uh, my question is, uh, well, we're, we're blessed to be a church that is growing spiritually. Um, we're having some, some people come and join and be members and such, and even regular attendees and first-time guests pretty regularly. But people are coming from different parts of the uh, D.C. metropolitan area, not particularly in the community where we're in. So, so we're in what's called a challenge community. Some people call it the hood, you know. Yeah. But um. So, so we've done some outreaches and things like that. We see some people trickling in from, from the local neighborhood, but we get a lot more people from the more affluent parts of uh, D.C. and Maryland coming right. in. And so I'm not like, y'all don't come in here because we don't want to pass y'all, you know. But at the end of the day, <laughs> is it from your experience that it's, it's more difficult for people to be more trusting in 
communities in the urban context? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. And it is a problem, and you're right to be wary about it, and you have to manage it somehow. Because if what happens is, if the people, uh, first of all, the people coming further away are going to have more trouble getting their own networks. See, if, you, if you're coming from a long distance away, you're motivated. So if somebody, uh, if, let's just say you're talking to a friend who doesn't go to church, and even if you invite your friend to go to church and they say, okay, where is it? And you say, wow, that's like a 20-minute drive. What do you, you know, why are you going down there? Yeah. It's not my... So very often it's harder for the commuter. I, I hate to use the word commuter, but it's harder for the commuter to reach uh, his or her neighborhood right. and the people there. But then the people in the neighborhood, when, if they walk in, they can almost immediately realize these aren't people from around here. Yeah. And so they feel a little, a little uh, left out. And so uh, I do think you're right in not being legalistic and saying, uh, and there's plenty of churches that are legalistic about this, and say, you can't come here unless you live here. Yeah. And we know there's plenty of churches like that. It does feel a little too uh, rigid, but you, it, it can get out of hand. That's all I can tell you. It, it can get out of hand, and you're right to be concerned. Um, and you, uh, at the very least, here's one thing is the, the people from the neighborhood, you better find ways of lifting them up. You have to be even careful there. So that, but you have, to, you have to get them up front, you have to affirm them, you have to engage them, and they have to be a little more... People basically feel welcome if they see themselves up front. I'll just tell you, let me tell you a strange story. Redeemer is about half uh, East Asian, which is you know, Chinese-Korean about half white. It's actually 45-45 and 10% black and Hispanic. And one of the reasons that happened in the early days, I would love it to be a little more diverse than that, but I was even surprised. I, I, in the early days, when you walked into here, the first year, when you came into Redeemer, there were only two faces you saw from. There's my face, and there was a Chinese woman who played the piano. Yeah. <laughs> and it turned out in that church, we were running a Seventh-day Adventist church, the piano was right next to me. Yeah. So that it wasn't back there, she was up there. And so and she was facing the congregation. So you saw me and you saw an a, you saw a white face and an Asian face. Yeah. And within like three months I looked out there and I saw white and Asian faces. Yeah. And I said, how'd that happen? I didn't you know. And the answer is in some in some very uh, subtle way you feel welcome if you see yourself up front. Yeah. Yeah. Now when it comes to the sometimes it's not as simple as you know, as just what color it is. Because there's different classes, there's different, you know, there's a professional and the working class and all that. Uh, so let's just talk about your accent, yeah. uh, your language. People hear, uh, they, if they hear their, their common tongue, you know, the reason why the Catholic Church eventually started, got, got out of Latin into the vernacular was so people could understand. Um, uh, your, your accent and, your, and your, your way of speaking so I would say you need to privilege the challenged neighborhood uh, with who's up front and, uh, and, and the way, uh, the ethos of the church. You really need to do that. And you need to say to the people commuting, and if, you, if you are really, really committed to this place and us ministering in this place and not just being a gathering, a club of all the people in the metro area that love this particular kind of ministry, uh, if you really care about the neighborhood, that you're free to come. But even there, you have to watch it because if it gets to a certain percentage, especially pro especially problematic if you want to multi. Some of you know this. It's it's really tough if 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 the percentage of people 
if I'm trying to be, if, for example, if, if, if I get too white or too Asian, I'm going to lose, people are going to walk in, they're going to look around and say, eh. You see, in other words, if it gets to the place where it's 80% Asian and 20% white, even if I'm up front, yeah. some of the white people come in, and you might say, what's wrong with you? Well, I always say this. You don't expect people to be sanctified before they're justified. You can't expect people to get Christian maturity before they're even hearing the gospel. And I, I can't expect people to overcome all their various biases and insecurities. And yeah. I don't want to be, you know, an outsider here. I can't just say, what's the matter with you? You know, why don't you have this wonderful, you know, gospel-based, you know, view of race? They aren't. They don't have that. And so you do have to manage it and not let one group actually outgrow the other. And it's not easy. Yeah. Because you don't want to be heavy-handed. You're not a dictator. Yeah, yeah. So you're right to be concerned, but I don't think it's it's not fatal. <laughs> not fatal. Cool. Okay. You talk. Uh, how you doing? Uh, Hi. Being here. Uh, you talk about multiple pathways into that, and it's something that really resonates with us, especially since we found that you know it's it's more difficult to invite your friends to church, let alone maybe a group. But it's easy to invite them to a movie or concert, or something like that. Yeah. So you have all these multiple pathways. Or a Super Bowl party. Yeah. Can you share certain things that, that you've found success in those multiple pathways and events and all that that you've actually done? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, they, they, don't forget that the zero level are your people in your church that you know are intentionally praying for and trying to form non-coercive and non-exploitative friendships with non-Christians. And just letting the chips fall where they may, but it doesn't mean you're not intentional. So what can very often happen is, let's just say, you, let's say you're a church of 80 people, and let's just say you know that there's probably about 15 of your people that you know are really trying to do this, and you're getting together occasionally, and you're you're affirming them, and you're 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 making yourself available to them, and occasionally you're you're reading a book together so they feel more confident about talking about faith, that sort of thing. But what two or three of them can just can get together and say. What could we do together that would be fun that we could bring our friends to so they would meet each other and they would also meet other Christians? I, I wasn't kidding when I said Super Bowl parties yeah. are a great idea. Um, you can actually, you, you can let your, your lay minister, the, the, the sort of the lay minister people in your church think themselves about what to do, especially if they know their people. There's an infinite number of things they could do that would be fun in which the folks are just meeting Christians who are normal. Right. That's that's the that's the lowest level. They just mean, and you never know. Sometimes what will happen. Um, for example, I had a uh, Thanksgiving. There was a, there was a, a young architect who's not a Christian. Who I can tell you more about Christian Christianity that I've met through um, through an evangelistic event. And he's uh, he doesn't have anybody in his family, and uh, left. In other words, his father, mother, dead. He has no siblings. He was an only child. And uh, we invited him to our house for Thanksgiving. And he was the only non-Christian there. But uh, he, uh, he, well, first of all, he loved, he couldn't believe we did it, and he loved it, and he was very lonely on Thanksgiving. He's Jewish, he's, uh, 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 you know, a New Yorker, born and bred, but didn't have a lot of people, didn't have any place to go. When he got there, uh, I was his friend, but I'm a minister and I'm busy. These guys over here keep me pretty busy. So I often feel like I just don't have much hangout time for evangelism anymore. Uh, sure enough, he connected with two other people who were there. Very, very good connection. Uh, they had some common interests. Uh, they had some, uh, well, for example, he was ex-AA. Oh, well, not ex-AA, he's AA. In other words, he's an al ex-alcoholic. Or no, no, I'm sorry, you're not supposed to say that. He goes to AA groups, he's 12-step. He's recovered. But 
uh, I didn't realize it was another Christian who I invited to my Thanksgiving dinner who actually, that that was his background too, and they figured it out somehow. And they have spent, you know, they've gotten together and spent some time. And also my son was there, who's a minister, and connected very well, and they've gotten together, and it was what I was hoping for. So you, you, you bring him to something that'll be fun, and then he connects with other Christians, and then it just happens more organically. Now if you move on up, um, so actually in some ways, you as a minister can give people examples of that and encourage that, but eventually that happens pretty organically. Then if you, to move it up, it does take a little bit more intentionality. So for example, if, if you're a, uh, uh, I, I mentioned the example of a Christian artist. Uh, another, I'm going to give you a crazy idea. Uh, uh, I, I know that the head of the, of a, the Shakespeare Improv Company, the Shakespeare Improv Company is a, is a group of uh, improv comedians from uh, Chicago. And what they do is they come, you, uh, and, they, and they will make up a, a comedic Shakespeare play on the spot. You, just, you have to give them the title, and then they have to do it on the spot. And they, they don't go around and ask. They just, they just do it. They're improv. They're from Chicago. They're very, very funny. And the, and the leader of the group is a Christian. So one of the things we did at the downtown congregation last year was we simply said, we're going to have the Shakespeare Improv Company here in the afternoon uh, because, you know, we, we rent the Salvation Army building all day on a Sunday. And so we just, I know this is a little bit different, but nevertheless, uh, we had them come in. They, they did a terrific play. The, uh, the, if I remember correctly, the, uh, the title that they sent was, the title was Cat Food for Breakfast. And they had to create a Shakespearean play with iambic pentameter and finishing every, every uh, uh, they had to do the, their soliloquies, they had to, do, they had to finish every uh, scene with, a, with a, a rhyming couplet, and they did it. And it was hilarious. Then all I did was I brought the guy out and I just simply said, look, you're a Christian, and I want to know, is there any relationship to your, of your faith to com comedy in general, performance art, and improv? And he came up with it was it was quite good. Otherwise, it wasn't. He wasn't giving. It was very clearly off the cuff. It was very clearly heartfelt, and it was thoughtful. And um, the non uh, my uh, Christians in the congregation brought all of their. They were fairly well known in the comedic actor world in New York, and so lots and lots of non Christian actors and especially comedians, stand up comedians, improv people were there, and they were fascinated with it. Then afterwards, we had a. Uh, uh, only, only the see the only person who's a Christian is the director. All the other actors are not Christian. And then we had a reception for them afterwards, and all the all the non-Christian improv people were coming and asking questions. It was it was no in no way was it coercive. It was a perfect example of the next floor up, yeah. where they're just hearing Christianity positively, but they're not getting a presentation. Yeah. They're just surprised to see. Oh my gosh, a guy is as funny as that. Is a Christian, and that's interesting. I hadn't. It just, it just, it really shifts the paradigm enormously. And there's an infinite number of those things. But you, as a as a church leader, you have to brainstorm those. You have to figure those things out. There's an infinite number of them. So I think most churches, they know the higher up ones where you have an event and you have a speaker and you have you know, Osginus comes in and does his thing, and and then you know the alpha. So we know the upper echelons. We do not know the lower ones. And there's an infinite number of things you can do. Does that help a bit? That's great, thank okay. you. Sure. Um, Tim, you talked about uh, this notion of um, gospel-based pluralism. How? Um, what experiences have you had in terms of 
maintain um, unity, um, dealing with divisiveness or dissension within within congregations as you're sort of maintaining this pluralism? Well, um, yeah. Did you all hear that? Can you? Should I use the mic or yeah, it's not working? Okay. Or repeat the question. Well, uh, the question I think the question is that if you're you're bringing in. If you're going to have a, like 10 or 15 percent of the people showing up on a Sunday are inquirers and seekers and all that, if you're broadening like that, what happens? Does that create division, or what, how do you manage division inside the congregation if that's happening? I got to tell you that a sharp division where you have party spirit and you got conflict destroys the whole dynamic. It destroys it. I'm just like it just uh, the, the tension. It, it, it makes makes Christianity less credible. Uh, an awful lot of people you're trying to evangelize have had bad experiences in the past <laughs> like that. And I, I don't think in any way that it, that it leads to division in particular. In fact, I think the more you have a church thinking outward face, the less they're going to be yelling and screaming at each other because we don't. You know, why are we doing the Lord's Supper every week instead of every other week? Or, you know, why, uh, why, why isn't the preaching more expository? I mean, that kind of thing happens, but if you're really outward focused, it's less likely to happen. If the division happens, I can just tell you it's, it's fatal to your outward face until you can get it solved. So that's a nice, easy question to answer for you, though it's not very, it's a sobering answer. Yes, go ahead. Um, my question kind of has to do with his. Uh, in terms of, like, how would you tease out how this is not, like, seeker-sensitive? And, like, from the folks in your camp that may push back and say that you're appeasing the crowd too much and not um, helping to edify or build the, the body. Yeah, well, seeker-driven churches, I thought. I, I remember, I, you know, some of this stuff is passe. I, I didn't mention the seeker-driven church as one of the phases I could have. Uh, one of the, one, I, I think the old Willow Creek model, and you know Willow Creek has backed away so far from where it was. Uh, the old Willow Creek model was you had services for seekers only on some, on the weekend. And it was for seekers. And so um, I've been to them, maybe you were too, or there are other churches like that. It was not participatory. It was almost no hymn singing. There was a performance music. Uh, the talk was never a Bible exposition at all. It was, uh, it was uh, basically taking a felt need and maybe bringing the Bible in to solve it. Um, so it, there was very little participation. There wasn't scripture being recited. It was, there was like usually no scripture read or hardly any. Uh, and, and then the weekends, the, the, week, the midweek services were for Christians. Remember that? The idea was the Christians met for edification on Wednesday or Thursday, and you brought your non-Christian friends on the weekend. And by and large, not only did that not really work, I, I mean, most studies proved that there was never more than about 25% of those weekend services that were for, that had, actually had non-Christians in it. Yeah. There were a number of people that studied it and said, uh, you know, two, three quarters of the people who were there were Christians, which, and they were getting very, very little. And so when you actually have a, uh, services that are supposed to strictly um, reach non-Christians, and on the weekend, uh, it basically came out that they were starving the Christians. Christians were still showing up on Sunday, not on Wednesday. They were getting, there, there was no Bible exposition, they were not participating. It didn't have any transcendence to it. It was, it was kind of exciting, but the sense of God wasn't there because you weren't, you weren't singing Christian music, really. 
and you weren't participating and you didn't have the word uh, lifted up. And I don't know what, what, what the services look like now, but I mean, you know, the studies show that it was not helping their people grow at all. And it was, certainly, if you're that big, if you, if you, st if you still have a, a thousand non-Christians showing up on the weekend, uh, that certainly, I'm sure that they, they saw people come to faith. Of course, they had lots of people coming to faith. But uh, if you're talking about a 15,000 person church, and most people weren't getting paid. It was it was considered basically that didn't work, and that has given any that has given a lot of people the impression that any talk of seeker, um, any talk of, of including in your preaching the, the existence of non Christians somehow is the same as that. Well, it's not. You, what you have to do is you have to show there's a lot of gradations here, and I'm actually talking about. Uh, expository preaching, I would do, that includes Christians and non-Christians as you're doing it. So that they, they just, they feel like their their doubts are being addressed, that their existence is being addressed. But it's participatory. You're praising God. I would, you have to, I've written a little bit more on that, but it's not, to me, evangelistic worship is not the same thing as a seeker-driven or even a seeker-sensitive church. There was a day in which people said they're seeker-driven, so there's a seeker-sensitive well, in that sense, probably, I'm talking about seeker-sensitive, but the word now has a connotation of seeker-driven. Does that help? I, you just have to, you have to show people the significant differences along the spectrum, and we're here, not down here. Very helpful. Somebody else? Good. Somebody in the back. Help me to believe this is not another trick. It's too hard. It's Okay. And it certainly sounds like another version of discipleship. Okay. Uh, the, the answer to the first question is really easy. Convince you that this is not a trend. It's too hard. It's too hard to be a trend. It's just not. Trends are things that people can, they're viral. You get them and you do them. And what I'm talking about here. It takes a, a complete. It takes a conversion on the part of the uh, church and the leaders, and, it, and it, 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 it affects every single part of your ministry. And I just think it's actually too hard to be a trend. And I think you're getting. You're right in saying, isn't this what we should have always been doing all along? You're. you're uh, I'm being realistic about the fact that if you disciple your people, um, they should all be doing this. Well, I'm, I'm. I am being a little realistic in saying I think 20, 25 percent of your people, if they are. Um, if they get it and they start doing it, you need to identify them and you need to support them. You need to find ways of affirming them, lifting them up, making yourself pastorally available to them, uh, give them models. So, yes, it's basically it is discipleship. Sure it is. But it's, uh, I'll tell you this though, if, if you, if we had time to go and maybe, you know, if you get involved with city to city in some way, we could go into more detail. Uh, I have really given you only the top level. If I say, here's how you create a worship service in which the non-Christians are addressed. Here's how you preach in such a way that people who have very different cultural assumptions can actually be challenged and not just confused or, or offended. I'm not saying they want all, they, they, but unnecessarily offended. So if I, went, if I went down into how you do this, I think you'd probably find uh, it's a little bit more than just, well, aren't we supposed to be doing this? But anyway, it's actually just, 
This isn't a trend because it's too hard, and it's too close to what people all along have said we should be doing. And the other trends were ways, the other trends were easier ways to do it. Say, well, we don't have to get the whole church on board. We just need a little group of, you know, commandos. We just need a little, we just need this program that you just lump on and you don't have to change the culture of the church. So all the other trends were not changing the church. It was, it was a, it was a glue-on program. And so this isn't a trend because it's not a glue-on program. And I can't, I can't imagine what happens after this. Because it's hard and it'd be very difficult, I think, for us to pull off. Somebody else, yes? Uh, what advice would you give to planters in the beginning as they're wrestling out their calling to the mission of evangelism with their survival as a congregation? Um, because oh, no. I think a lot of a lot of planters feel called, particularly with a desire to understand their context, do evangelism, reach lost people, but in the process, the practicalities of survival creates a need for drawing certain people into the team right. that are going to also then help make it sustainable. How do you? What advice would you give to planters? It depends on the investors and the stakeholders behind your church. Mm. Um, if you are a real pioneer. And you've got a few. I just some, if, if you are a true pioneer, and you've got three or four people who are putting the money up for a couple of years, um, that are your friends, or something like that. Then you you say to them, you say to them, I want this to be evangelistic. I'm not going to. I'm not. And that means it's going to start slower, but it will be stronger in the long run. Or your missions agency, or your 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 mother church, or whoever. You've got to get them on board. Otherwise, you're going to feel too much pressure. They're going to want to see numbers. They're going to see nickels and noses. They're going to want to, they, they will want to know. Remember nickel? Uh, anyway, you have to be pretty old to remember nickels. So uh, it, it really is, a, you have to manage the expectations of the people that you're reporting to. I don't think the people inside the church will mind. Actually, most people inside the church like it if it's not huge right, right away. I mean, there's some, there's a certain kind of person likes critical mass and they like, the, you know, the aura of success and, they won't come until they say, wow, you're really, you know, this, there's a little bit of that. But by and large, the, the people that you really have to um, talk to are the people who sent you or the people who put up their capital or who, who you're reporting to. That's who you have to, to work with. Uh, I mean, you, and you can't go, there, there, there are people who I think are unrealistically idealistic, that they think you're going to build a, a new church with nothing but evangelism. You realize how long it takes to develop from, from you evangelize a person, then they're converted to the time they become a mature Christian, the time they become a leader. Yeah. How long is that? Eight years? Seven years? Usually, something like that. So, are you really going to be seven years before you have any leaders? <laughs> any lay leaders? That's what I mean by saying you have to get. If, if your church is going to go, you have to bring some people on who are already leaders that have the vision for the church. So, it can't be strictly evangelistic. But I do think there's a lot of pressure to just grow and the way to do that is to have a program that, that draws people because of your hipness, your coolness, your preaching, the particular kind of music, the children's programs, and, and you're just drawing people from other churches. And some of that has to happen, some of that is otherwise you won't go to the church, but you do have to manage the people, manage their expectations. That's what you should do. And you might not be able to. Because if they put pressure and they say, no, you got to be, you know, you have to be off the dole in this number of years, you know, months, and you say, yeah, this stuff's not going to happen through evangelism. 
the other thing to do is when you, you maybe you shouldn't have gone to the field until you made sure you had the you you had a long enough ramp time to, to do the kind of church you wanted. But very often we don't think of that far ahead. Then you have to come back and say, you know, it's going slow, but uh, we're really seeing evangelistic fruit here. Somebody else? Any wisdom on speaking to people that identify themselves through these various floors that were um, understand themselves to be affiliated with a particular denomination, in particular a mainline yeah, denomination, something like, well, they would say, well, I don't believe that, but I'm an Episcopalian. So how do you how do you address, how do you, I mean, any particular ways of wisdom to speak to those types of people in those various fields? Yeah. Okay. Um, so the person is persons that maybe not sure they believe, but their background is is a certain kind of. What I usually say is, if the background is such that they're in your they're coming to your programs or your meetings, your church, and they sense that I'm not. They, they say I'm not a believer. I, I don't really believe. And I, I'm trying to believe. But if I believed, I think I'd like to believe like the church that I grew up in, and you're not that. And you know what you say is fine, let's just see whether or not you're able to get to believe, and then you can decide whether you want to stay here, or I'll be very happy to find, uh, help you find a church of that denomination. Not that hard. I, I, I've done that many, for example, the PCA, my denomination, does not ordain women. So I've often in the past had people who were coming and they were growing and you know, toward faith, they didn't believe, and then suddenly they find that out and they say, I'm pretty upset about that. And I said, okay. I said, does that mean Jesus couldn't be raised from the dead? He said, well, no. I said, right, well, let's figure out, if you believe Jesus raised from the dead, you become a Christian, then uh, you can decide whether you want to stay here or not. I'd be happy to send you on to a church that does ordain women, who's also a church that believes the Bible, etc. In other words, what I, which sometimes gets me in trouble inside my own circles, as if I shouldn't do that, but I would do the same thing for someone who says, well, you know, I come from more liturgical background. Redeemer, one of the things that Redeemer in the early days, it was music to my ears. I had people say, um, I don't like, I would rather have a higher church or a lower church, more liturgy, more charismatic, more emotion, da da da. What they always would say is, Redeemer is not my kind of church, my ideal kind of church, but I can't bring my non-Christian friends to my church. I can only bring them here. This is the only place where they like it, where they say, wow, I hadn't heard this before, or they're intrigued and they want to come back. And uh, I said, fine, if, we, if, they find, if your friend finds faith and you want to go to church with them and it's not here, I'll take them back. Or, so, and I want you to know, the, more, the, less, the less territorial you are, the more people want to be with you. The less possessive you are, the less you act like, no, no, you got to stay here. Uh, the more secure you are. And say, like, you know, the Lord's going to send us the people we need. Uh, the more people are going to say, I don't want to go anywhere. <laughs> so I, I, right now, I have a lot of people in my church who are very irritated that, re, that our church does not ordain women. But they, everything else about the church they utterly love, and they just couldn't bear to be anywhere else. And they told me that, even though they said it's just it's a burr under my sunlight. And it's probably because, and one of the reasons they stay is because I said, you don't have to stay here. There's other good churches. I think if they saw me saying, well, anybody who doesn't have our view on all 30 things we believe is really kind of second class Christian, 
Uh, that, that would make, that would have probably made, even the gospel presentation would have been less attractive to them if they had seen that in there. Yes, sir. Um, can you say something about how we can work together as, as various churches? Um, we're about 25, 30 churches that are represented here. Um, I think a lot of us, we're not at all anti-ecumenical at all, but we're, our hands are full with our own local yeah. church, and it's just hard to think beyond our own wall, and, and yet you've said before that to reach a city, you really have to work together. I mean, just What does it look like practically to um, be the body of Christ in a, in a large city? And, uh, none of us have time. No, well, that's right. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't help if your church. You know, if your church is small, you have no time because you're doing everything. And if your church is, gets big, you still don't have any time because the, <laughs> the church is the church is like this voracious, you know, man minister eating beast that just <laughs> needs. We have all these programs, needs a staff. You've got to be there. And we have to raise all this money, and and so uh, it, to make time is 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 a real sacrifice. However, and look, it's if stuff happens, if you give it the time and you develop the relationship, stuff happens. It occurs to you. In my case, I, here we can say this: Redeemer did get large quick uh, by God's grace. And I think it was partly because God wanted to use us as an icebreaker. It's been helpful in New York. In the late '80s, it was a tough place. And if, I think if, we ha if God hadn't blessed and, and grown us to a thousand people like very, very quickly, which was a kind of phenomenal thing, um, I, it would have been hard to survive because of, because of the cost of things and because it was a hostile environment and so on. But what, what, we, what we found was when we got, suddenly got big, uh, the temptation for me was to be eaten by the man-eating beast, which was everybody wanted me inside. No time for anybody else. But partly through a couple of other people who pressed me, uh, I got involved with uh, some other, you know, uh, broader pastor, pastors groups, and I realized the Redeemer was in a position to help other churches start churches. We had some, we had a little extra cash because we were bigger and and all that, and I suddenly realized, but none of them are Presbyterian, <laughs> so we started getting into a place where in the early days of our church planning center, we were giving money to non-Presbyterian churches to help them start new churches. And uh, I'd say for about three years, the, um, the, the rest of the city was waiting for the other shoe to drop. I remember I talked to one Hispanic pastor, absolutely said, look, you're, you're a church, you're a professional church, you're kind of white. You know, they realized they weren't totally white, but you're kind of a big white professional church. And when you started giving money, I remember we gave money to a, uh, an assembly of God, Spanish-speaking assembly, assembly of God church in the Lower East Side to start a daughter church in Harlem. We gave them money. Everybody waited for about two years to say, Where, there's going to be strings attached. Somewhere you're going to say, now here's what we want from you. And we didn't do it. And when that happened, there was a kind of, there was a kind of breakthrough. And it wasn't just that we were trusted more. It was people started saying, maybe we ought to be trusting each other. So, and I don't say, I'm not saying that that's exactly what's asked to happen here. That's what I mean by saying you have to, you have to hang out, you have to, you have to develop the relationships and then see what God does. I really do think opportunities will present themselves that will be specific to your time and place. Should you call on people because I'm getting so many? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm Let's see. I'm, I'm afraid I'm missing people. Yeah, if you haven't asked a question yet, with your hand up, let me see. I thought I saw three, no. Okay. Oh, yeah. Back there, okay. and then I'll come in front. Then we'll come back. Uh, Tim, yeah. young people 
I know, crazy. I know. And not the way it was 30 years ago. It wasn't the case 25, 30 years ago. Not at all. And, which isn't the same thing to say that they have a robust theology in the city, of course. Not at all. still discipleship needed. I don't know if that's a good example, but what are ways church planting has changed, urban church planting has changed, as far as you see it strategically, tactically, philosophically, or including maybe things that you feel like you learned organically? Well, one one thing that's happened when, when the cities, when the center of those cities was poor and working class, um, the uh, it, it it was a it was a very different <laughs> center city inner city center city ministry was quite different when. I started there. Uh, Manhattan was a little different. Always was a bit different. Uh, Manhattan there was a there was a really strong layer always of pretty secular people. Uh, they were generally ex-Catholic, ex-Jewish people um, who uh, had been raised, you know, in the boroughs and kind of you know became secular, moved into, into Manhattan, and it was a whole slew of those folks. And 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 evangelism there worked, but it was slow, but it did work. Then in the mid-90s, something really happened. And uh, I, I don't know about DC, but I can tell you, I know it's partly true. My, uh, my son, my youngest son is an urban planner, works in the city of New York. He says that there had, uh, most cities have been built up through migrations. So he says the first, you know, like for example, the first migration was the colonial, right? You know, Eastern, uh, Eastern and the first migration to cities of America was Northern and Western Europe and the African slave trade. And that's who came here originally. The next big migration was Irish in the 1830s, massive. And that brought Catholics at a higher level than before. Then there was another, uh, it says another big migration into cities was the, uh, uh, from 1970 to, oh, pardon me, from the 1940s to the 1970s, and that is the migration of African Americans from the South to the cities. At, you know, DC changed completely. You know, in that in the racial makeup of DC changed drastically from the 50s into the 70s. That sort of thing. Then there's one, two, three. The fourth great migration was Eastern Southern Hemispheres. That's where your your people came from. In other words, it's other people moving to the cities not from Eastern and Southern Europe. Oh, 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 oh. sorry. It's first was the colonial days, the second was the uh, Irish, the third was Eastern and Southern Europe, that's the Jews and the Italians, 1880-1920. The fourth was uh, Africans moving up from the south, to African Americans moving the south to the cities, that was in the middle of the 20th century, that's the fifth one, no, that's the one, two, that's, cool. that's the fourth one. The fifth one was Eastern and Southern Hemispheres, people from Asia, Latin America, the Caribbean, Coming from 1880 to uh, from 1980 to, to, to the current time, Are you following all that? Every one of these ways has changed the cities of America. But since the 1990s, there's been a sixth migration, and the sixth migration is it's domestic. It's basically people from the rest of people. You might say people from the red states moving to the blue state cities. People ex-pace. People just people from the rest of the country. Younger people who want to live in cities. And they just show up, and they, they they gentrify the cities. It's the sixth migration, and 
Um, every single, uh, every time you have a migration, the, the church planning becomes radically different. Uh, what happens in, um, in, in New York, I think just say New York, what happened was, when I got there, you either did evangelism amongst the secular, um, the secular New York and, uh, descendants of the Italians and the Jews that had come in the 1880s, 1920s. Their, their children grew up, they, I mean, they had grown up in synagogues, their grandparents grew up in synagogues and Catholic churches. And then the children went to college, lost their faith, came into the, uh, the middle of, of Center City, Manhattan, and really formed a very, very secular kind of professional world. When I got there, you had to evangelize those people, or there wasn't anybody. Because by and large, the boroughs had ethnic churches. So you had, you had Korean churches and Chinese churches and Spanish churches in non-English speaking. And then when the children grew up, now what happened to me is, um, the first generation of the Asians who went to college and became English speaking and started moved, got into the professional world and moved into the center of the city, I was in on that. Because a lot of those folks had been raised in Christian backgrounds, the Koreans mainly, not the Chinese. A lot of the Chinese had found faith in college. For whatever reason, a lot of my Koreans became, you know, were raised in Christian homes, but the Chinese were found faith in college, but weren't raised in Christian homes. But when they came to the center city, they needed a new kind of Christianity. They were ready to walk. They, they, the more legalistic, parochial kind of Christianity they were raised in just didn't work because now they were not really Asian. They were Asian-American. And I was part of that wave of uh, Asian, uh, the first generation of Asian-Americans moving to the center of the city and looking for a kind of Christianity that would, would conserve their faith or even in some cases win them to faith for the first time. Then, starting in the 1990s, suddenly all these evangelicals moved to the city because they thought it was hip. And now you can start a church without doing evangelism. That's, that's the latest big thing. I could not, in the 80s and 90s, I could not have started a church. Certainly not with white people. If there's any white people in my church, I evangelized them. Virtually everybody was white that I had to evangelize. That's not true anymore. I know that what I just said was kind of rambling because nobody's really asked me this in the past, but... Uh, or at least not in a good long time. But I would say uh, I got in on one um, trend, but I've been fighting the other trend because I think if, we're, if, if, if we didn't have this sixth migration of all these Americans moving to the big cities, including evangelicals moving to the cities and looking for a more urbanized and more hip kind of Christianity than they came from, uh, where they came from, I think Redeemer would be a third the size it is. Redeemer is 6,000 people. It would be no more than 1,500 the old way. We were growing mainly through evangelism, but then we, we just kind of got a little moment with people that said, wow, this is a great church, and you know, better than the Southern Baptist church I grew up in, and you know, cooler and more intellectual, and so they showed. And I do know an awful lot of other churches in New York City now can be planted and started without really doing much evangelism at all. Okay, so yes, right here. And then, what do I mean? Tell you what. Is it that? Yes. You're next, yes. and then go ahead. Yeah. Well, I, I went before, so... Uh, I know, go ahead. Uh, uh, real quick, um, do you believe a church's internet experience is useful for evangelism? And then if so, do you believe that a person can become a member of a church from only having an internet experience with a church? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. First of all, the internet experience is really important. It doesn't mean every technology has its dangers. You realize, for example, nobody's going to get rid of the automobile, but there's 
tens of thousands of people who are killed every year and millions of people who are maimed. And nobody ever says, well, we're, let's, let's get rid of that technology. Um, so the internet technology has a lot of problems too. It does isolate people. It does, um, it, it, it isn't, it's, there's, everybody's talking about what's wrong with it, but nevertheless, it's there and you have to use it. But I would say you're giving in too much if uh, people say, through the, I'm relating to you only through the internet. For example, the elephant in the room on, on a, uh, in education. If you take a Master of Arts, a one-year Master of Arts, strictly online, which you can, strictly online, it's in the privacy of your own home, when you want to do it, you interact with a professor, you write your papers, and all that, strictly online. All the studies show that you do, that very same MA, if you take it with a group of, say, 20 people, in a classroom, face-to-face -face with the teacher and face-to-face -face with students for a year, that you learn far better, even if it's the same content. Yep. Everybody, and, you, and it's common sense, you know right away, of course I would learn it better, if I actually had to go to a place, interact with students rather than just do it in my own home. So the same thing will happen if people say, I'm gonna to relate to you through the internet. It'll still, in other words, it's not like they wouldn't get anything out of it, they will not be as formed, and they will not be as shaped, and they will not be as changed as they would be if they were in a community. Let's yeah. make this the last okay. question. Oh, be good. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> make a good one, right? Yeah, I'm not trying. There's a lot of pressure on you now. Um, well, there are a lot of families moving into the city. Yeah. We do have a situation where you can go to a church plant that meets, for example, on Sunday evening, and it's like completely populated by 20-year-olds and under 35 and all single. And so you end up with sort of not the full range of age demographics that you'd, that you'd like to see in a church. And that's not necessarily true in my church, but we, we don't have that many kids. And just can you reflect on that in terms of the, at, you know, a city church planner, should we be very concerned about that? How can you help that? Well, it, yes, yes, maybe, yes, no, maybe. See, first of all, my... Redeemer originally was average age 25 years old. You know, even when we had 1,000 people, we only had five children. 1,000 people and five children. 90% single. And, uh, but what was interesting was we, we have taken a census. We've taken a census every three or four years, and we asked people, um, how much longer do you think you'll be here in New York? And then we, we let them check you know, six more months, one more year, two more years, five more years, and the, the highest is 10 plus. And people who say 10 plus are basically saying for the indefinite future. Usually, very few people actually say, I'm gonna be here for 12 more years and I'm leaving. I mean, generally, <laughs> generally, if you say 10 plus, it means for the, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I'll be here forever, but indefinite future. Now, I do remember the very first time we took that census, which was like in the mid-90s, only 5% of the people that said I'll be here to be here 10, 10 years plus. It, I don't know where it is now. Do you, I, the last census, do you remember it, Scott, at all? It's been, yeah, it's been north of 25. Yeah, it's, it's, now, it's, it's now north of 20, the high 20%. So more than a quarter of the people say we're here long term. And it's just inched up. And of course, because it's inched up, it's more diverse in its age. In other words, I've got older people, I've got younger people. Uh, I think we're maybe down to 60% single now. I think it's something like that. Uh, which is still, by the way, having a megachurch that's 60% single, still, we're still kind of unique. 
in that. And but I'm not sure they can get much lower than that because Manhattan itself is largely single. So if it would actually get south of 50%, when I know Manhattan is at least 60% single, I think 55, 60. So uh, same thing with male, female. I watch very carefully. What's what's the uh, percentage in Manhattan of male, female? What's the percentage of uh, race? What's the percentage of uh, uh, singles, and I'm trying to make sure my church isn't too far off. Uh, so it, it took me a while to get there. It took me years. I, I, you had to find ways of saying stay around without making people feel guilty, which is actually a very important question. Let me do this. What you don't say is you've got to stay in the city. You've got to be committed to the city, and if you don't, you're... <laughs> you, you don't say it. You're a second-class citizen, but Christian... Instead of that, what you ought to say, if you're thinking of staying here for a year, make it two. If you're thinking of staying here for two years, make it three. The longer you can be here, the more continuity, uh, the, the better your relationships will be, the better your savvy of the city will be, the, more, the, the, more, the less transient our church becomes. It, it, I'm not saying you have to stay forever, just stay longer. And of course, what will often happen is, and then if people, when people leave, you don't, make any, you don't cross your eyes at them in any way at all. And that makes people not feel like I need, you know, they, it makes people want to be with you. It's the same thing as the turf consciousness. And the less turf conscious you are, the more people, people want to be with you. The less you force them to stay, the more they'll want to stay. But you still want to encourage them to stay. And I think that's what happened over a period of time. One last thing, though. I do see churches, in order to reach the 20-something crowd, I mean, the very young crowd, is they, they, the, the music and the ethos is, skew, is skewed toward them. And I do say, if you, if, well, I never did that. I couldn't. I, I was almost 40 when I got there. And I'm just not, look at me. <laughs> Think about it. And I, I, don't, I mean, I have less hair, but I mean, basically, I've always been like this. I was, it's not like, oh, he's old now. Yeah, I've always been. <laughs> so I, the, the church never, never kind of like went after younger people. It just happened to be, it just preached the gospel in a place where everybody was young. And there we are. However, um, there, I do see churches because they want very much to reach that demographic. If you try, you'll, you, you will be caught there. Because, it, because those kinds of churches very often just look like a glorified youth group. And so somebody else comes in a little bit, a little bit older, and just the emotional expression and the way people talk and even the jargon is so oriented toward the youth that very often it could never get older and you'll be stuck there forever. And also... <laughs> Say to people, I said, look, I, yeah, I what we'll sometimes say, look, you know, just make it a little bit older. I mean, you know, don't make it so rah 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 rah. You know, uh, I said, otherwise, if it's if you stay really really young, it'll be incredibly transient. You'll never have any leadership, and of course, your per capita giving will be terrible. <laughs> just throwing that in here at the end. So. <laughs> Why you might want to be a little more age diverse. <laughs> so. Uh, so anyway, so that's the reason why there's really nothing wrong with it as long as you, if you start that way, you if you can you can diversify over a period of time. If you get stuck there for a long time, you will really will find your own church being kind of unable to stick with stay there a long time. Great, Tim. Thank you so much.